Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Greetings and welcome to our kingdom. This is Under Consultation, an episode podcast guide through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, attempting to control my balls. And welcoming you once more unto the breach. I am Ash Versus. This episode aired on the 1st of October, 1992. Our number one film of the box office is... And top of the charts is... So yeah, so that wraps it up uh, for the magazines for this. And now let's head on over to Games Master and find out what our... For this week's first challenge, I thought I'd test your nerve on Marble Madness. The... a series of mazes. So get rolling and don't lose your marbles. Rig, this is Under Consultation, an episode-by-episode episode podcast guide through the UK's greatest video games challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, not to be confused with Eddie Honda. And lumped together and ready to go under the cosh, I am Ash Versus. This episode aired on the 1st of October 1992, and our film at the top of the box office is City of Joy. Why did you come here, Max? Right out. Big mistake. If you're not empty, how can you be filled up? Hello, Junior. Welcome to India. Where am I? You're in the city of joy. Is it geographical or spiritual? Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> but also, man, where have the past, what, four or five months gone? 
I know, right? I know. It feels like we were literally recording last week. <laughs> I can't believe that it's been four or five solid months since season one. So much has changed. Yeah. Um, I've got a beard. Autumn has rolled rounds. Yeah. We, we've got Butlin's jackets on. We've got Butlin's jackets on, yeah. Although not the most stylish thing that we will see in this upcoming series. <laughs> I have notes. <laughs> So, City of Joy, what can you tell us about it, Ash? Can we talk about something else? Can we continue to talk about the change of the season? <laughs> no, we have to talk about City of Joy, I'm afraid. Okay, uh, directed by Roland Joff. Is it Joff or Joffy? Joff, Joffy, I believe it is. Directed by Roland Joffy, starring Patrick Swayze of Roadhouse. I love Roadhouse. Great film. Roadhouse, easily my favourite Patrick Swayze movie. Um, I'm doing anything possible to avoid talking about this movie. But it's a story of... A rural farmer who moves to Calcutta with his wife and children, and also Max Lowe, played by Patrick Swayze, also moving to Calcutta from Houston. Yada, yada, yada. Misfortune, mugged, thugs. Yeah. It's... No. Look, I'm going to just cut to the chase. I'm not even going to bother reading the full synopsis for this. This is a white saviour movie. I have distinct issues with it. Yeah. And it's nothing to do with being woke or anything like that I just find it really really offensive and even at the time I, at the time I wouldn't have been the only one a number of people found it offensive including the government in the country in which it was being filmed who tried to block them from filming it's Oscar bait nonsense it is Oscar bait nonsense uh, when they were filming by the way they had riots what in Jakarta? Yeah, really. Yeah, they had riots and they were there were public protests and firebombs and Bloody stuff. Hell. But they were determined to shoot in like the real locations. But the objections from the government were because they were worried that the film would kind of reinforce that image of Calcutta mainly as city of Mother Teresa and uh, missionaries and. M Mother Teresa and the organization mm. that she set up and followed was actually the beginning of the concept of um, two degree uh, volunteer holidays and poverty tourism. Mm. Yeah. Because you'd go along, backpacking, volunteer, and then once you'd done some volunteering, you'd go and spend some time in the city. Yeah. Well, yes, it did some good. It's also a little bit exploitation y and not something I'm a huge fan of. Mm. However, they did get to film in the city for what they needed but they couldn't do full-time production there so they went just outside the city to the docks and spent seven million dollars building a slum oh, okay almost 70 80 buildings but for authenticity they went to the original slum the actual slum mm. and offered new metalwork and doors to the people living there so they could take their old tin roofs and doors to make their set authentic mm. bunny ears in action yeah and it was you know it, as authenticity goes it looked right um they also gave them the option to do floods during a rainstorm which they'd have had a difficult time doing in the real streets with any degree of control but i just i don't like it mm. and so therefore can we talk about roadhouse or <laughs> <laughs> well, we could talk about what the uh, they went on to next because the next year these two are going to be involved in a movie that is tied into what we're currently doing for this show because these two people are responsible for the very first video game movie in super mario brothers yeah because that's when you think of super mario brothers what you think of is you want the people behind this movie in the killing fields yeah well nintendo did like that was one of the reasons why nintendo went with joffy and ebers is because 
they were going to bring a much darker tone to it. Like they were pitching. The other side as well is that Joffy and Ebert's literally went to Japan. So when Nintendo put the feelers out that we were, we're going to do a movie based on Mario, you know, everyone called Paramount, Disney, Sony, everyone called, but none of them went. And Joffy and Ebert's, well, Joffy in particular, went to Japan to meet with them in person with loads of tea and said that it was a very expensive trip but he spent less doing that and his original pitch, because his pitch was half a million dollars for the right, whereas everyone else was pitching like five million. Mm. Um, but so his doing half a million and just flying over in tea was way less than what Disney and Paramount were pitching outright. And that's how they got the deal. That's how they got it, because they went and met them in person. I'm going to take this direct quote from a, a book called Lights, Camera, Game Over, How Video Game Movies Get Made. I've read that. It's a good book. Oh, thank you very much. It's available on Amazon. Oh, yeah, it is. And other good book retailers. So Joffy said in it, They looked at the movie as some sort of strange creature, Joffy says, intrigued to see if it could walk or not. Ryan Hoss, smbmovie.com fan site founder and webmaster adds, Joffy essentially said, I'm here and they're not. I think the way he approached pitching his version of the movie to Nintendo is what won them over more than money. Nintendo didn't care. What Nintendo did care about was how the producers would handle the property. English-born Joffy was the man behind City of Joy and the Killing Fields, while Ebert also came from a background of adult-orientated dramas. With three of the top-grossing films of 1990 being family entertainment adventures, Nintendo was keen on a kid-friendly approach. However, their American office, headed up by the notoriously belligerent Minoru Arakawa, was keen on Joffy and Ebert's darker approach. This wasn't Snow White and the Seven Dinosaurs, Joffy said. The dino world was dark. We didn't want to hold back. The idea of taking a dark take on what would essentially be marketed to children had come off the back of the mega success of Batman in 1989. Director Tim Burton had adopted a much darker tone than previous adaptations of The Dark Knight, and this proved to be effective, grossing over $251 million domestically and propelled Burton into a hot commodity. It's amazing how many people I spoke to about the production of Super Mario Brothers all said we were trying to do Batman. That's all they were, that, that was what their blueprint was for the Mario Brothers movie. It was Batman, which had come out, you know, three years prior. Okay, Batman. Dresses in dark clothes, uses the emblem of a bat, swings around a violent and corrupt city. Dark and gothic is natural. Mario. <laughs> you see where I'm going yeah, here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a case of they really wanted that square block to fit the round hole and they just needed to find a hammer that was going to make it cooperate. And fair f*** to them they did <laughs> yeah. they found it I was trying not to swear because as much as I enjoy listening to you cover my swear words <laughs> with sound effects I thought I'll try and make your life easy but no fair f*** <laughs> they found someone that could do it and Mario Brothers Now is a cult hit mm -hmm. unfortunately at the time it wasn't it was critically panned it was commercially... Uh, a disaster. It was yeah. a disaster. It certainly didn't help that it came out two weeks before Jurassic Park. Yeah, a proto-Yoshi is not going to combine with the full might and majesty of the Stan Winston <laughs> creature workshop. Absolutely not. Um, if you want to know more about the making of uh, Super Mario Brothers movie, obviously, you know, my book is available and it's, it's out there. But also Best Movies Never Made recently did some podcasts. I say recently, it's recently at the time of this we're recording this, but it'll have been like a month or so by the time this podcast actually comes out. But go find it in their archives. It's a really, they do a two-part, I think, on it. It's a two-parter. They also act out segments of script with a really remarkably good Bob Hoskins Mario impression. 
you get to hear all about the various drafts and the ideas, including at least one where it was essentially the Mario Brothers in Rain Man. Oh yeah, Drain Man. Drain Man, there we go. It's worth checking out. Heartily recommend. Yeah, that was when they actually had Dustin Hoffman in line to play Mario, which was then shut down by Minoru Arakawa, who didn't think that he would fit the role. He also uh, said that Tom Hanks couldn't play the role either, which is how Bob Hoskins eventually got the role. Tom Hanks would have been a good Luigi. Yeah, at the time, in particular, he'd have been a great Luigi. I'm thinking, yeah, big era, Tom mm-hmm. Hanks. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And our number one song at the top of the chart. Oh, it's a banger. It's Ebenezer Good by The Shaman. Oh, my God. <laughs> I can't wait to see what bit chip tune version of this you find <laughs> to lay in the background. Well, I'll tell you this. It'll be naughty, naughty, very naughty. I love this song. I still love this song. I think my parents were a little bit too straight to actually realize what it was referring to, <laughs> for which I'm eternally thankful because it means I didn't get in trouble for playing it repeatedly. It's a banging tune. Yeah, it's an amazing tune. And it's also amazing that it got as much success as it did because when it was first released, it was banned by the BBC. Always a mark of a quality song. Yeah, it was banned by the BBC and mixtape. We're, we're going to try and like spread out our thoughts about this song because we've got this for what, four weeks, I think it's at number one before it gets pulled. Yeah, because a band pulled it because it was ruining their release schedule. It's <laughs> yeah. like we're going to be competing with ourselves with our next single. Yeah. But it's an absolute... wet, wet, wet never did that. <laughs> no, oh, they no. bloody should have. Yeah, absolutely, they should have done. I was sick of hearing that Amiga cover of that song. <laughs> I tuned it out by the second episode. I was just like. <laughs> It was, it was just kind of the magic roundabout theme instead. So we'll go into that in a bit more detail because what I want to talk about, um, you know, we kind of joke that it's been a while since we've got together to talk about this. But in, you know, the timeline that we're covering this show, it has been six months, six, eight months. Hmm. And we've missed some big old releases in the world of video games. So I just wanted to cover a few of these. Please do. In the time since Series 1 ending and Series 2 starting, April saw the release of the Super Nintendo. May 5th saw the release of Wolfenstein 3D. Without Wolfenstein 3D, I don't think video games as they are today would exist for better or for worse because Wolfenstein 3D led to Doom. Doom led to a massive burst in the home PC gaming market. It led to Quake. It led to 3D accelerator cards. It led to 3D graphics cards. It led to Unreal Tournament. It led to Call of Duty. It kept pushing further and further forward at that point what was pushing games forward graphically particularly in the 3d arena uh, were flight simulators and suddenly with wolfenstein 3d with doom with quake with that entire lineage of first person shooters and first person games right up to this day they were more accessible than any flight simulator ever was Uh, And if we're going to keep on recommending things, I heartily recommend Masters of Doom, which is a fantastic book telling the story of the two Johns and how they got together, how they then created uh, ID and how they created id software and how they did Wolfenstein 3D and Doom, their eventual split. It is a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. Uh, July 29th saw the release of Echo the Dolphin for the Mega Drive. Echo the Dolphin possibly the first actively eco video game we've had top banana boy have we had top banana <laughs> oh, yeah. but this had a strong message with actually fairly solid gameplay 
behind it uh, led to a couple of sequels in the last one of which was for the Dreamcast. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Crazy game as well about time travel and, and going and meeting dinosaurs and, and all sorts of stuff. But I, I think a lot of gamers listening to this podcast will remember that first time you play Echo the Dolphin and working out what the f*** you're supposed to do at the start of that game because it gives you no hints. You just swim around, like, butting things and firing off sonar, but there's no real preamble or story or, nope. or anything that will give you a guide and direction. It literally drops you in at the deep end. <laughs> yeah. September 1st saw the release of Championship Manager, a game that I've got a lot of fondness for. I never got into it, but I admire the longevity of the series because it's still around in some form today. I think so, yeah. Champ Manager 2, 96, 97, that was my era. That, that was my that was my favourite version of the game. I could just never get into all the stats. It, it was it was at that point where I was beginning to drift away from football. Yeah. So yeah. And lastly the big release is September 2nd saw the release of Art of Fighting. Ah yes, SNK, the uh, often imitators to the Capcom Street Fighter crown. But often people will say that they are the true fighters uh, company because that's where you get Art of Fighting and Fatal Fury. You've got to master those games in order to be good at them. Whereas Street Fighter, as we will sort of see as we get into this episode, is a game that anyone can play and then you have to be good in order to master it. Yeah, I I would argue that I think Capcom have the right idea. Yeah, Certainly I, gonna, from, I completely agree. Because I don't want a fighting game to be easily won by button mashing. But also, I don't want to struggle just from first pickup. However, I do have a lot of time for SNK. I did own Fatal Fury for the Super Nintendo. And I have a deep love, as flawed as it is, for World Heroes. <laughs> because those characters were bonkers. Yeah. And there's a new Samurai Showdown, either out or around. Yeah, or, I think so, yeah. I would love for them to sneak in some old World Heroes characters as DLC. Because I don't think there's enough love for World Heroes to warrant a new game but I wouldn't mind seeing a few of the older favourites again. Uh, and just to run through some of the movies that we've missed at the box office, uh, we'll try not to go into these too much so we can get into the episode. We've got Hook, Basic Instinct, Batman Returns, Lethal Weapon 3, and Alien 3 were all number one at the box office. Man, um, we missed some amazing movies I know. to talk and about. And we'll come back to City of Joy next week as bloody Spotswood. Spoilers for next week. <laughs> Uh, Rhythm is a Dancer by Snap was number one in the charts while we were gone. Jimmy Nails ain't no doubt, but let's give a big shout out to Right Said Fred, Deeply Dippy. They knew how to write a banging pop ditty. Yeah. Deeply Dippy's a great song as well. Yeah. Uh, contact Sport, Let the Neighbours Talk. <laughs> He's talking about butt sex. <laughs> Uh, so before we get into our first challenge, should we talk about the fake opening to Series 2 uh, and what they were attempting to do here? Upset people. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you very much. Yes, we're back at last after five fallow months, welcoming you once more onto the breach, dear friends, for the best in video game entertainment. So for tonight's first challenge, let's renew our acquaintance with the great man himself, the Games Master. Greetings. How nice to join me once again. For this week's first challenge, I thought I'd test your nerve on Marble Madness. The object of the game is simply to guide a marble through a series of mazes. So get rolling and don't lose your marbles. And attempting to control his balls on this challenge is Mark Hopfield. So what happens is we get the same opening of series one the same opening graphics and then we get a shot of the church and we get dominic diamond still into that church i'm doing bucky o'hare ears 
Yeah, he's had a haircut between shots, but we'll leave it at that. Um, and he says that, you know, we're welcome back. We've had five months off, but once more into the breach, dear friends, it is glitching and a little warning comes up saying, do not adjust your set. And then the first challenge is Marble Madness. Uh, but then it's very quickly starts cutting out and a boot up screen appears saying that level one's expired and terminated. Level two is now loading. And that's when we get our new intro. But it wastes about two and a half, three minutes. It it kills when you... Consider the runtime of an episode, including opening and closing credits, is about 23, 24 minutes. And particularly in season two, those closing credits are long. The opening credits are long as well. Yeah. That helicopter flies forever. I know. They made the mistake going out to the games rig because the commute <laughs> is a bastard. In retrospect now, it is odd to see this kind of sign coming up saying, do not adjust your set interference, because we don't get that now. A channel is either on or briefly, it's off. Yeah. You do get breakdowns of some channels. It's happened to a few of the TV stations I watch, Challenge TV mainly, mm -hmm. because I am stuck in the past. <laughs> well, how else are you going to watch countless hours of Bullseye? You've literally nailed <laughs> what we spend most of our time watching on Challenge TV. Unless you've got the double top there. <laughs> oh, always got the double top. But it was a thing that happened, particularly, I think, with Channel 4 and BBC2. Channel 4 mostly, because Channel 4 always was a little bit low budget. Yeah. But you had this thing, because we were using analogue transport mediums, these big tape machines, they overheated, the tape stretched, it snapped. Um, you would have problems with local transmitters or the relays to the local transmitters. So seeing this come up wasn't unusual, and I would wager that some people watching this had already seen this happen for real, in their region during season one. Yeah, yeah. So I um, so I watched this episode for the first time in you know, a long, long time when I was on that plane back from Japan. And I watched like the pretty much the entirety of series one in one sitting. And then I watched the first two episodes of series two. And when series two started, I was like, huh, I don't remember it still being in the church. That's weird. And then it came up with the little messages. And because, you know, these were YouTube rips, I was like, oh, man, is this the YouTube rip that we've got? One with technical difficulties. That's a bugger, isn't it? And it took me far too long to realize it was on purpose. And as soon as it, and, you know, as soon as it's revealed that it is one big joke, I was like, I'm a darned fool that I absolutely fell for this at the age of 34. They got me. They got me hook, line, and sinker. I am a little bit disappointed, though. Because I really wanted to see this Marble Madness challenge <laughs> yeah. with Mark Hopkins of Work Skunk. <laughs> but we will never know whether Mark manages to maintain a firm grip on his balls because the signal breaks down and we get some lovely pastoral lambs yeah. with easy listening guitar. It's very nice, really. It's it quite is. tranquil. It is, it is. It's more tranquil than what's about to come. Yeah. Because level one has expired and level two is now loading. And by God, it's proper loading times for that era because this <laughs> opening sequence does take a hell of a long time. But, ooh, check out those graphics, eh? 3D graphics. There is a definite leap in budget. You can tell they've had a bit of extra cash, not only because of the increased complexity of the title sequence, but the Games Master CGI rendering stretches all the way to the edges of the screen now <laughs> it doesn't just reach the cutoff point for overscan and stop very very nice uh and what a huge difference it is as well when you've got this huge set this ginormous like stacked upon stacked set and kids are packed to the rafters in there dominic diamond spends another two minutes running down steps so he can introduce the show wearing his lovely red butlins jacket but when he finally makes it to the stage, he welcomes us to Games Master 2, The Second Coming. Thank you, 
Thank you and welcome to Games Master 2, The Second Coming. Each week we'll be ferrying challengers and other minions out here to a converted all rig stroke holiday camp combination. Here they'll face rough seas, howling winds and the verbose vernacular of... The Games Master. Starting strong. Oh, we're starting strong there. And says each week people will be ferried out to their gaming rig slash holiday camp destination. I, I think it's a really fun setting for the show. And it, I, I think it is the one that's the most memorable as well of, of all the settings that we get. Maybe it's because I think this series has the most episodes out of any of them. It's 24 episodes. Yeah. We're in for a fairly long run. Season three is not much shorter. No, I think that's about 50 odd episodes. At least it feels like for 50 odd episodes. 50 odd episodes, but condensed down to 22. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into our first challenge of series two. Our first proper challenge, not Marble Madness. So what have we got, Games Master? Greetings, and I'd like to take this opportunity formally to welcome you to the Games Week. As you can see, I've undergone something of um, a facelift since our last encounter. Please bear with me, if to begin with, I seem a little um, disconcerted by some aspects of my new environment. Good Lord. I must say, for my part, I'm thrilled to be back so that we can resume our little communions. Nothing beats a good grapple. So for my first challenge, I've opted for the unorthodox pugilism of Street Fighter 2. The object of the game is to inflict terminal damage on your opponent in a best of three fight contest. The uh, dirtiest tactics tend to pay the greatest dividends, so lots of unseemly conduct, please. Seconds out. Hey, this ain't no series one now. Pack it, pack things up. We can go home. It's not going to be peaked for this season. Oh, things are different now. We punch people now. This ain't no Panzer kickboxing. This is Street Fighter bloody two, mate. Although I wager, because obviously I've watched it, there will still be the same amount of whiffing of moves. <laughs> So yeah, Games Master welcomes us to the game rig. Um, he's had a facelift since we last saw him. You can hear seagulls in the background from his helipads and a little bit of fire comes out from a pipe. He goes, good lord. <laughs> I wonder what they told him was going to be there. <laughs> but also, he he was good in the first season. There's a bit of pep in his, yeah. in his presentation. He has some fun from this point onwards. I guess because he's maybe now seen episodes, so he knows what he's dealing with even if he doesn't always necessarily understand it uh, so it's a very simple challenge for street fighter 2 pick your opponent batter the hell out of the other one and win the best out of three rounds very very simple stuff but it's just it's exciting because it's street fighter and it's street fighter 2 on the home consoles yeah this is a super nintendo version which has often been described as an arcade perfect conversion yeah, yeah, really lots of bunny ears because... <laughs> Big buck your hair ears. Oh my god, there are so many differences. There's people missing from the backgrounds, there's voices missing. But despite the fact that it really wasn't arcade perfect, you know what it was? Groundbreaking. Damn good is what it was. Rage quitting started <laughs> with Street Fighter 2 on the home console. Yeah. And it was also, for a good amount of time, it was the killer app for the SNES yeah. over the Mega Drive because... SNES had Mario, that's okay. Sega had Sonic. A lot of games were multi-platform. A lot of games had equivalents in style, if not in name. There wasn't, for a good chunk of time, a Street Fighter 2 for the Mega Drive. Yeah, not until they got the Special Champion Edition. And, and even then, when it got that, it was hampered by the fact it was a three-button pad. So you had to, if you wanted to play it properly, you had to go out and get the six-button pad, which is extra money on top of that. And it's really funny, like, for the next year or so, we are going to see Sega release so many Street Fighter imitators that are going to be, this is 
our version of Street Fighter. This will be our Street Fighter beta. And absolutely none of them are until they get Special Championship Edition. Do you know what? They released so many imitators to Street Fighter. I'm amazed SNK didn't sue them for gimmick <laughs> infringement. Well, we scoured the arcades trying to find the best two fighters on Street Fighter 2. So please welcome Henry Coleman Jr. and Peter Deitch. Welcome, Henry. Welcome, Peter. Right, now, I'll turn to you first of all. Henry, I know you two have had a couple of practices together. Who's been coming out on top? Well, it's not like evenly matched, really. You can't really tell. Okay. Right, so what character are you playing tonight? I'm choosing E-Honda. Eddie Honda, yeah. and why is that? Because of his um, country hand slaps, sweeps, and um, close range to bear hug, so I can drain his energy down. Okay Thanks. then, right. Peter, who are you playing to counter Eddie Honda? I'm going to be Ken today. Okay, what are we going to see from Ken see then? Dragon punches, um, sweeps, all types of moves, slams, everything. If you'd like to take your places, we'll get ready to play. Uh, and our two competitors are Henry Coleman Jr. and Peter Deet. They've had a couple of practice fights and Henry says they're quite evenly matched. And he's picked E-Honda because of the 100 hand slap and the devastating bear hug, while Peter has picked Ken because he's a basic bitch. <laughs> hey, as a Ken player, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> I mean, Ken, you, there's a joke of you literally fight like a flowchart because it works. It's a very, very, very easy character to get to grips with. I find it interesting that he listed uh, E Honda's bear hug as a finishing move. Yeah, he says that later on. And it's, it's so wonderful because that's how I would have described it back in the day as well. Whereas if you look at it, how it fits in with the canon of Street Fighter moves and the set of moves that every character has, it's just the throw yeah or the equivalent that's, of the that's throw. his throw yeah he has well he has two he has the over the shoulder throw yes. with one and then the bear hug with the other yeah and the, the throws are like those are the big damage dealers in street fighter 2 if you can master doing a throw you're all right you're onto a winner because you could do like almost half damage with it it is a high risk move though because you have to get in close they have to have their guard down but you also do as well yeah you, there's that microsecond where if you miss the grab you leave yourself wide open and it's game over. Yeah. One thing I will say as we start to get towards this, this is not the PAL edition no. of Street Fighter 2. This is the American NTSC version as best as I can tell, uh, which is an impressive get. If it is the PAL version, then they must have some friends in high places at Capcom because this would be a pre-production board or pre-release cartridge. I'm pretty sure this is the NTSC version. I think like in one of the shots, you can see one of them lift up the controller and I'm pretty sure I can see purple buttons. Also, it is actually, the picture I think is full. Mm, Whereas yes. we would have had some letterboxing over here because of shonky PAL NTSC conversions. Yeah. Do you remember when those were a thing? I know. I was going to say, really, we should have been listening out for the music because if it sounds like the music that we now know, yeah. you know it's the NTSC version. But unless you want to hear the, the sort of half slow down version, then we're like, oh, cool, it's PAL. Although good luck hearing that music because by jingo, this crowd is rabid. Aren't they just? And helping me out in the commentary box is a street fighting expert, Nintendo Hotline Zone. Keith Pullen. Uh, welcome, Keith. Thanks a lot, Dominic. Good oh, to be here. Thank you very much. Now, Keith, we've got Eddie Honda against Ken. What are some of the special moves for people who perhaps don't know the game at home? Okay, E Honda has a hundred hand slap, right. um, which is a series of very fast punches um, coming in a very few, short amount of time. And what, what about Ken? What's he Ken, got? Um, he has a very um, aggressive low kicks. Okay, we'll look out for those. Before we get to that, Keith Pullen, who works for the Nintendo Hotline, is in the pulpit. That's a weird one. Isn't it just? 
Keith takes the audience members who might not know what Street Fighter 2 is through the various moves that each of the characters are going to do. And he says uh, Ken has aggressive low kicks. And then he's about to say something else. But Dominic Diamond's got no time for him. And he was like, sorry, mate, we've got a challenge to do. Let's fight. We wasted nearly three minutes with a fake out intro. We don't even have time for the mandatory joystick waggling jokes. <laughs> There's no time for you, Keith. So let's get into the fight. Uh, Ken immediately busts out some hurricane kicks, tries again, but Honda slaps him down. Honda kicks Ken loads and he wins. He's one up nothing. One thing I did notice is the game time has been set forward because this game is running quite fast. That's not counting down in seconds. That's half seconds. Yeah. Uh, into the second round, Peter misses some dragon punches, uh, but tries to repeat some and then goes for the tried and tested method of jump kick and sweep. Yeah, jump, medium kick, hard kick, sweep. Yeah. Now, I said this before we started recording, but at the time, this was mind-blowing because this was Street Fighter Two being played on the television. Nowadays, you look at it and it's like, man, this is appalling Street Fighter Two gameplay it's, because yeah. we're at a point now where Street Fighter, in many of its iterations, is a major competitive eSport. The concept that you might have only two dragon punches in a match and they both miss yeah. is laughable. I do have some sympathy because, confession time, I played loads of Street Fighter 2 on the SNES. I could never truly master the Dragon Punch with the SNES controller. It's a tricky D-pad to do it on. You give me a joystick, you give me a Mega Drive-style D-pad or one of the Mad Cat's fight pads if we move forward towards Street Fighter 4. No problem. Rolling them out all day. But that SNES joypad, I gave myself blisters on that, trying to get the roll it's a tough for the D-pad. Yeah. Actually, I mean, I was playing it literally the other day uh, playing Street Fighter 2 in the office because we got our mini SNES in there and I had a, a round with Ken and I was like actually getting out these dragon punches is not easy I think also and some people have said this the games do get more forgiving as they go on yes. because they want them to be more accessible and also they're less concerned with taking your coins <laughs> yeah. because at the end of the day, Street Fighter became a bigger hit in the home market than it did in the arcade. Yeah, this oh man, it's incredible what a big game that this was around the time. Um, but to your point as well, that this is like it's it's mind-blowing to see this on on Games Master. And I got such a kick out of watching this back. But if you compare this to how people play Street Fighter now, because it's not like you can go anywhere now and see people play Street Fighter 2 averagely. Because the only time you're ever going to see people playing Street Fighter 2 competitively is if they're dead good at it. Mate, you should come and see me play Street Fighter 2. I will give you all the average you need. <laughs> what I mean like that is like in a public forum. It's oh, no, like, no. You're not going to see people playing averagely at a tournament. That is just going to be full of people who are wicked at the game. Yeah, I mean, in fairness, they've had 30 years to get good at it. So you'd hope. Yeah. I actually went to, I went to a screening of the Street Fighter movie that was a, it was an interactive screening in that anytime a fight broke out in the film, they would pause the film and then would switch over the SCART to Street Fighter 2 on the Super Nintendo of the fight that's about to take place. So you would do like Chun-Li and Bison, you would do, I, I can't remember like the various fights that they do. And I got up to play one of them. I played as Bison, and boy, howdy, did I suck. I thought I'd be... I was like, Bison's my guy. That's who I play as on Street Fighter 4. I'm going to nail this. And I sucked donkey dick at it. I was dreadful. 
I think that was one of the things I remember about when we got Super Street Fighter 2 for the snares or when you got the championship special edition for the Mega Drive. For me, those final four bosses, Bison was hard, Sagat was the one that always got me. It took me longer to get past Sagat most of the time. Yeah, he was a tough bugger. Then it would pass Bison. And I was like, finally, now the power can be mine. I can be Sagat. I can be that badass that no one can be. And you know what? I stunk as Sagat. <laughs> my favorite character that my love for is always outweighs my ability to play as him is Vega or Balrog, for mm -hmm. those of you that are shouting the correct names <laughs> at the podcast. Because he was so radically different, he was also the only Street Fighter with an actual weapon. That was why he was my favourite too. He also just looked badass. Looked he had cool, a man. mask, he had the, the gloves, he could climb the cage. Yep. It was so cool. It was really cool. So we, we, I don't know if we got through the uh, the second round there yet. Um, it's mediocre. It's, <laughs> Dominic Diamond at one point claims that sumo is not a recognised sport. Uh, and then E-Honda starts fighting back from a major deficit, but Ken takes him out with a punch. We even get a replay for that. That punch. It was. It was. A, it was a slow motion replay. I like that. <laughs> but the thing is, it wasn't a dragon punch. It was just a, a punch. It was hard punch. Yeah. And then into the final round, we're one apiece. Honda dives into a dragon punch. Dominic Diamond keeps calling for the fat sumo bloke to do better. Ken throws a couple of fireballs. This is all Ken. And then, and then Honda comes back. That fiery babyface comeback where he takes it at the last moment, he blazes out some moves, he locks in the bear hug, oh. and it's just all over. You see the energy being sapped away. Boom, done, 2-1. It was all about that 100 hand slap. He got the 100 hand slap in, and from there it was game over for poor old Kenneth. He gets wiped out with that bear hug. What a great finish. Superb opening challenge. I loved it. Also, I love the name of the challengers because Henry Coleman Jr. sounds like a boxer. <laughs> he does. He yeah. sounds like he should be good at this game. And you know what? He was. Yeah, he really was. And I um, I really like Peter as well because he sounds like me and my mates back in 1993 and 1994 talking about this game where you want to sound like you're the one who knows the most about this game because you might have read some article in a magazine somewhere. So you would say something like, yeah, it's all about the bear hug. That's Eddie Honda's special finishing move. Uh, let's go to you first. Peter, a really good comeback there from you. You were out of it in the first bout. Talk me through it. Well, when the second bout, I kept on coming in with flying knees, cyclone punches, and a couple of sweeps, and I should fin thought I'd finish him off there. Okay, then let's go to our champion, Henry Coleman Jr. Now, Henry, what on earth were you doing at the end of it? It looked very rude. Well, it was sort of like um, Eddie Honda's special finishing me with a bear hug. He just basically come, comes up to them, grabs them, then drains their energy, and I was counting on that to me to be the victor. Yeah, no, it's not. That's boulder dash. That is absolute boulder dash. Uh, Dominic Diamond calls it shaken vac action and we've got the first winner of the Golden Games Master Joystick in Series 2 it's back it's bold and a deep sea diver is presenting it not Dave Perry no. in that wetsuit they did employ a model to do this job and they're like cool you look great here's a wetsuit <laughs> and a diver's mask yeah. and a hood and at least they didn't make her wear the flippers. I did. When she first started to walk up the stairs with the joystick, I'm like, please let there be flippers. Because just the idea of them employing this model and then for a game so obsessed with joysticks and innuendo to essentially have 
a uh, a model with sex appeal then be put in some of the most unflattering clothing <laughs> possible. It was it was beautiful. But anyway, the first challenge is over. A wise move in having two people fight for the joystick yes. where there must be a winner because it means you're starting Great point. with a winner no matter how it goes. Tonight we take your grey cells for a gentle jog as we look at Brain Game. First up on the Mega Drive, the Simpsons marketing machine trundles along in Krusty Super Fun House. Krusty Super Fun House is a brilliant game. It's got a unique combination of lemmings as well as a bit of platform to do. You have to guide a load of rats into a trap, which may sound pretty dull, but because the levels are so massive, it could be going for ages. I wanted to see more levels, and I was intrigued and inspired to try and solve the levels. Although it's got very cartoon-style graphics, which you would think would aim at children, um, because of the size of the levels and the puzzles, it, it appealed to a very wide audience. Because we wasted so much time at the start of this show with its, you know, fake out intro, we've actually only got time for two reviews this week, and it's Brain Games. Kicking things off, though, with Krusty Super Funhouse for the Mega Drive. Which is a real die-hard two of a game, because guess what? This wasn't even a Simpsons game to begin with. It this was, was a game called Rat Trap. Yeah, for the acclaim, Yeah, yeah, the acclaim they got the license for the Simpsons, and they're like, what can we slap this IP on? Which, you know what, is entirely in keeping with the Krusty character, I feel, because <laughs> yeah. in the canon of The Simpsons, Krusty slaps his name on any old sh**. Same here. Yeah. Although it's actually a fairly good game. Yeah, I really like Krusty's Super Fun House. I never owned it myself, but a friend of mine had a copy, and I remember going around to his to play it a couple of times, and I actually I would be very interested to go back and play it again, because you know, they compare it to Lemmings on here, but it's also got platforming elements, you're guiding rats, it may sound boring, but the levels are so massive, it can keep you going for ages. Tell you what, play a drinking game this episode, take a shot every time they compare something in this review section to Lemmings because whether it's accurate or not, they will do it. Yeah, we should say actually our three reviewers are Alex Simmons from the Control Zone, Max Francis and John Davison of Mega Drive Advanced Gaming. I do not remember that magazine at all. Absolutely not. There are some magazines that come up here because, spoilers, we've lent heavily on archive.org's humongous possession yes. of magazine scans. Some of these gaming magazines just don't exist there and it's very difficult to actually find any evidence of them anywhere. The game got released for the Super Nintendo as well. Super Play gave it 79% and wrote, it's actually pretty good fun to play, although perhaps more of a younger player orientated game than anything else. Not one to set your heart on fire, but a solid game nevertheless. Which kind of, I think it feels reflected in this review as well, because Max Francis wanted to see more levels in the game. And uh, John Davison says that the graphics look like a kid's game, but the level size makes it appeal to a wide audience. Still a respectable 87% on That's the review. That's pretty strong to start with, unlike the next game. Next, block-building, clock-beating, fluffy creature-saving action on the Amiga, courtesy of Troddlers. Troddlers on the Amiga at first seemed to me to be a Lemmings rip-off with a bad control system, but after I'd played it, I realised it was exactly that, a Lemmings rip-off with a bad control system. The puzzles look a bit nicked from Krusty's, um, and the Troddlers just are nowhere near as cute as Lemmings. I'm, I'm sorry, they just don't work. Troddlers is a very dated game. The graphics are very 80s and the gameplay is excruciatingly dull. Yeah, unlike Troddlers on Amiga, I've written here, this looks like a total Lemmings ripoff. And then Max says, it's exactly a Lemmings ripoff. I'm going to be controversial. I'm going to disagree because while I think there are definitely similarities to Lemmings, Lemmings doesn't actually have you control an on-screen protagonist. No. I'd say that is a fairly key game difference. It doesn't make the game good, but it does make it different. Interestingly, PC Gamer gave it 82%. What did they know? <laughs> Maybe the PC port was better. 
uh, than the Amiga version. Uh, but John Davison says the puzzles have been nicked from Krusty's and the Troublers are nowhere near as cute as the Lemmings and Simmons calls it an 80s game. It's the 90s now, dudes. 46%. Yeah. There was a Super Nintendo port of this eventually, yeah. which actually tied in with the Super Nintendo mouse, but that port did actually make it more of a Lemmings ripoff because you were no longer controlling either Hocus or Pocus on the screen. You were waving a mouse pointer around, <laughs> much like in Lemmings. Yeah. Now it's time for this week's new game section, and we open the series with the first TV shots of the most eagerly awaited sequel of all time, Sonic 2. Yes, he's back, and this time he's got a friend. The Green Hill Zone has suffered a mutant revamp with the cheeky chappy bouncing off all kinds of angled springs and twisty walkways. In one player mode, Sonic's newfound amigo Tails will help him collect those rings, while the split screen option allows two players to compete in an orgy of hyperfast frolics to the finish. If you thought the Spring Yard Zone was bruising, feast your eyes on Casino World. And finally, it's disappearing Sonics and Tubes Ahoy in the polluted play area of the Chemical Plant Zone. This game is unfeasibly fast and looks set to slip into the slots of Sega owners everywhere. And for our new game preview section, it's Sonic the Hedgehog 2. And it's funny, we, I was talking to a future guest on the show, Dave Bulmer from Sonic the Comic, the podcast, that... It's weird that we have done this first series of Games Master in a pre-Sonic 2 world. Kind of like, you know, now in 2020, where it's just like, you look back at the Mega Drive era and it was Sonic 1, Sonic 2, Sonic 3, and Sonic and & Knuckles. To look at an era... Hey, 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 was, don't forget Sonic Spinball. I, yeah, you're absolutely right, and Sonic Spinball. <laughs> I had Sonic Spinball, I got it for Christmas. And we were just a Sonic the Hedgehog only kind of world. There was no Sonic 2. And so this preview here, where you're like, Sonic the Hedgehog is getting a sequel, it feels mind-blowing. Yeah, this was part of the big build-up to the game, which would eventually result in Sonic Tuesday. Yes, which is next month, actually, in the timeline. And Dominic Diamond says this is the very first TV screenshot of Sonic 2, calling it one of the most eagerly awaited sequels of all time. He's not wrong, and he's not wrong. <laughs> yes, and it's interesting as well, because this obviously doesn't translate into the audio version of this unless you've watched the episode. But when you watch the episode, the first thing you know is like, well, that's not the right title screen. And then you've got Dominic Diamond talking about the Green Hill Zone has had an update where they're showing you uh, Emerald Hill Zone instead. And you're like, huh, what? what's going on here? It's all very, very weird that they're talking about these things, but these now, you know, we know those two don't really co like correlate. I think this comes into where we are in the development of Sonic 2 and where preview builds and footage was coming from because Sonic 2 was allegedly due to have some of the time travel aspects of Sonic CD. Yes. And the whole idea that Green Hill Zone was then going to be Emerald Hill Zone, there was going to be different names for different periods of time. Yeah. So I'm wondering, did some of this come from the point when that was still a thing? And then, of course, it would be ported over to Sonic CD with its time travel aspect. So this version that we're showing is footage that was likely shown at the New York Toy Fair in 1992 because um, the title screen from that version is the same title screen version that we see in Games Master here. Uh, but Yuji Naka revealed later in life that someone stole that prototype from the Toy Fair and then mysteriously around about 1992 a uh, this prototype was released on sort of primitive internet. It was shared around for people to make fake, well, you know, um, uh, hacked Mega Drive cartridges released of this prototype version of Sonic 2 
which does have more of the thing you were talking about there, which is more of like, not so much the time travel elements, but the zones were called different things. They had different music. Like the aquatic zone opens the game. Like that's the first level. The thing I love about this is not that it was stolen, but the fact that it was stolen and was released onto the internet at that time means we can get that ROM now and we can play that bitch. Absolutely. It was called the Nick Arcade Prototype that was released in 1992. And then Simon Y distributed a better version of that prototype in 1999. So the theories are that the Aquatic Ruin and Emerald Hill Zone and Green Hill Zone, as you say, are like of the, the future and present version and Hill Zone, Hilltop Zone is the past version. Um, either way, Green Hill Zone appears in both of the uh, ports. Yeah, I do actually like the evolution. Hilltop, Green Hill, Emerald. It does feel like a nice escalation of names. But also, there was some deleted zones on there. Yeah, I've got a table here that Sonic 2 was planned as a time travel story. You would start in present time, and then Robotnik escapes by time machine, and you go to medieval time. Then you go to the present time in a ruined version, like Back to the Future Part 2. Then you would travel back to the ancient time, and the future has changed again, and you have the last battle in space. And I've got a list of all the zones of what would be the various different versions. Um, so yes, there is no way that plot would have actually translated into a Mega Drive <laughs> cartridge. Um, so yeah, so it's a very interesting uh, feature and a very interesting part of this show. Just because like it's crazy that we're only a month away, you know, two months away really from the release of the game, and yet we are looking at a very different title screen from the one that we actually got on November twenty fourth on Sonic Tuesday. Mm. Right. Well, let's get into our celebrity challenge hunt. Here's Games Master to tell us what it is. Hello again. It's time to don our raincoats with some gumshoe japery on who shot Johnny Rock. Tonight's challenger, turned detective, has three lives with which to survive shootouts in the pool hall and the casino in his attempt to find the mafia hoodlums responsible for the death of Johnny Rock. Good luck. I'll be rooting for you. Well, it's another laser disc game. Yeah. Uh, yep. It's, a who it's another American lasers game. <laughs> yes. Who shot Johnny Rock? Um... Yeah, I haven't really got much to say about this one. It did get a 3DO port, uh, which Electronic Gaming Monthly gave uh, 4.8 out of 10. Um, it had a Sega CD port as well. I oh, did it. Yeah, and PC. PC got the mouse support, which is not really to be surprised. Yeah. It was originally called Who Killed Johnny Rock, but I guess they thought, we better make it a bit more family-friendly, even though you're essentially gunning people down with glee abandon. Yeah, and you don't want to sound too much like, well, who framed Roger Rabbit, I suppose. And actually, that was originally titled Who Killed Roger Rabbit. No, I think they exactly wanted to sound <laughs> yeah. like Who Framed Roger yeah. Rabbit. Uh, so you've got to get through the pool hall and casino uh, with three lives. And our special guest this week, our celebrity guest this week, it's only Tony Bloody Slattery. And indulging in some sharpshooting skills tonight, we are very lucky to have one of the funniest men on television. Start of the music quiz. Whose line is it anyway? S and M, and that's love. Please welcome Tony Slattery. <laughs> now, now, Tony, do you actually play video games? No, I absolutely hate them. <laughs> okay, we're all the more gentlemanly of you to come on. Introduced as one of the funniest men on television, and he's not far wrong. There was also the joke that essentially he was on anything he was asked to be on and that his actual answering machine was just him saying, I'll do it. <laughs> I mean, that's quite clear from this as well because the first thing Dominic Diamond says is, do you play video games? And he says, no, I absolutely hate them. I love his delivery on that. Dominic Diamond 
tries not to let it rattle him too much. He says, oh, it's very gentlemanly of him to come on and says that this game isn't a game, however, it's more of a way of life and asks Tony to play it in the style of a prohibition era private eye if he can. Because Tony Slattery was on Whose Line Is It Anyway and things like that. So I think that he thought that we might be able to get him to do some improv while playing the game. But Tony's got no time for that. He just wants to ask about his jacket. Says, are you attending a wedding <laughs> after this? Now, this isn't so much a video game, Tony. This is more a way of life, this game. So we'd like you to play it in the style of a prohibition private eye. Can you handle that? Of course I can. Yes, that goes without saying. Are you going to do a wedding, by the way? Um, um, perhaps afterwards. Who knows, Tony? Maybe you and I. We don't know. If you play your cards right. Massive slam on the red coat. Right out. <laughs> Dominic Diamond says maybe afterwards, who knows, maybe him and Tony if he plays his card right. Now, mm. Tony Slattery is gay, but this was not public knowledge at this time. He's actually been with the same partner since the mid to late 80s, but he was very firmly in the closet for a number of reasons. One is uh, public opinion because of the way it was treated still at the time. Also because he didn't want his parents to know, although we thought his mother knew because she always referred to him as her bachelor son. <laughs> One thing I just want to get out there before we get on with the challenge. Tony Slattery was a mainstay on television. He was on so many different panel shows, quiz shows, game shows. Whose line is it anyway? Win, lose or draw? I think he might, yeah, yeah, he must have been on he that. He yeah. must have been on that. Unfortunately, he also succumbed to some of the excesses of celebrity life, alcohol, drug abuse, massive cocaine problem, and bombed out quite spectacularly. Also some undiagnosed uh, mental health issues. It led to a massive fall from grace. There is an article out there, an interview with him from The Guardian. Uh, I think it was done last year, 2019. I would recommend you go and read it because one, it is an immensely informative piece on where he's been and what he's been up to. It's also tragic. Okay, well, if you want to see if Tony plays his cards right on this game tonight, then join us after the break. <laughs> You may be looking for a car that's small and practical. But you still want a car that feels luxurious. Well, now you've found it. Because while the Clio is certainly small, it's perfectly formed. The Renault Clio. Nintendo Entertainment System. You won't believe the power. You won't believe the control. You won't believe the jumps, the curves, or the feeling you get until you experience it for yourself. <sighs> Whoa! That's fast! F-Zero for the ultimate G-Force only in the next generation from Nintendo. Now you're playing with superpower. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Take more than that to wake her. A proper cup of tetley should do the trick. She's stirring. So am I. It's all right. It's tetley. Sydney, my little prince, it's the best cup of tea I've had in years. back we have tony slattery here tonight and he's about to try his trigger finger out on the arcade game johnny rock we come back from the ad break and tim boone of cbg is in the booth with dominic diamond um they point out that tony slattery doesn't really like games but tim's like well he'll like this one <laughs> it's optimistic yeah. if you like this one he gets to kill people with wild abandon because when you think of tony slattery you think of mass murder <laughs> Yeah, he said you've got to look for clues by shooting the bad things and avoiding the good things. Very sensible advice from Tim. It's good advice. It's advice for life. Yeah, absolutely. Now, with me also is Tim Boone, the main man from CVG Magazine. Welcome, Tim. Hello, Dominic. Now, Tim, any tips for Tony on this game? He says he doesn't like video games, so well, what advice can you give him? He's definitely going to like this one. Basically, he's looking for two clues, one from the pool hall, one from the casino. This is basically uh, Gangster Central. And what he has to do is look for these two clues by shooting everything bad and not shooting everybody good. Okay. What, it, what he's going to need for this is he's going to need uh, quick wits, mm-hmm. nerves of steel. He's going to need quite a bit of luck, and he needs to be good with the ladies. So I think he's the right man for the job. Okay, then. Tony, are you ready? Yes, I am. Thank you, Patricia. <laughs> okay, then. Can you take your pistol out of your holster and begin the game? You fast piece. All right, I will. Uh, and Tony Timon then says, take your pistol out of your holster. <laughs> and Tony very much picks up on this duple entendre. Yeah, he's like, right, whip my dick out. Got it. <laughs> Uh, so this is your very bog standard um, laser disc game where you're watching bad actors do bad acting for a long time and then you get to do some action. But there is, I feel like there's more action in this one than we got with Mad Dog McCree back in series one. Absolutely. It it comes a lot more thick and fast. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also a very different style. The problem we have though is that when you fail on this game, like if you get shot, the whole scene replays over so what we essentially get to see is tony fail at this thing and watch him fail at it multiple times it's groundhog day in video game form <laughs> also just an aside does tony call dominic dominic at any point during this challenge because just when, when dominic asks if he's ready he goes i am thank you patricia yeah i did very much like it the first time he gets killed he goes that woman shot me yeah he is he is morally outraged that this woman shot him but the it's actually a clever ploy on the part of the game because you wouldn't expect it. He looks legitimately shocked. Yeah. Uh, whether the 
shock was a first time reaction i don't know they must have let him play it yeah and so he'd have seen that but given someone as talented at recall and improv as tony i'm sure that his reaction the first time it genuinely happened would have matched up with that uh he gets through the first bit on his third try i think he eventually gets through the first section of this then gets into the second one basically the way he gets through the first bit he realizes it's just to constantly fire it's just to hold down the fire button and eventually you'll get through it. Just shoot anything that's on the screen. Thankfully, in the first section, there isn't anyone innocent to hit that that we notice. So, yeah, it's a valid, valid ploy. But especially on repeated watching, the acting in this, <laughs> even if you look at it as a pastiche, the acting is so cheesy. Like, you know, if you go to a decent takeaway pizza, you get a four cheese pizza. Mm. And you can put maybe a stuffed crust. Yeah. And then maybe cheesy garlic bread. I'm hungry now. <laughs> but guess what? Cheesier. <laughs> Cheesier than that. So at the end of the first level, just before we go on to the second level, the casino section, because we go from pool hall to yeah. the casino, there is a brief interlude where there's a woman pushing a baby carriage. And the baby carriage opens. And it's an angry short man <laughs> with a gun. Yeah. It is literally the stuff of my nightmares. And he no-sells it and just shoots him. Yeah. <laughs> In fairness, thankfully, Tim Boone was there to really foreshadow it. He was essentially going, watch out for the carriage! <laughs> so in the second section, he avoids shooting one of the good ladies and shoots two other guys, but then, unfortunately, shoots an innocent right in the face. His challenge ends in failure. Bad luck, Tony, but, I mean, you were going so well, you only had not about one or two more people to bump off, but you bumped off the wrong person. I know. Well, I think success isn't everything. It was all these women in low-cut dresses appearing from nowhere. I mean, how am I meant to concentrate? <laughs> I completely understand. Now, unfortunately, Tony, you haven't won our special Golden Games Master joystick, but if I can patronise you for a second more and ask you, <laughs> have you enjoyed yourself anyway? I think the game is absolutely brilliant, and I'm not an aficionado, but I could well become addicted to that. Okay, that's only what you've been a brilliant sport tonight. Round of applause, please, for tonight's special guest, Tony Slattery! Uh, so, yeah, I thought Tony was a good sport. The, the game's the game's fine, I guess, but uh, I thought Tony was a really good sport about it. I thought he really, he looked like he had some fun with it. Yeah, it, knowing what we know and what we mentioned about Tony's life and where he probably was at this point, he definitely throws himself into it with much joy and and plays up to it. He's probably one of the few people I can think of that really just went toe-to-toe with Dominic and actually kind of upstaged him. Yeah. He had a very strong manic energy uh, as part of his stage personality. And there were a couple of times where I almost felt like Dominic stumbled a bit because they were kind of throwing backwards and forwards. And I don't think it's that it was unwelcome. I just think he wasn't used to it because normally he's speaking to shoegazing children going, yeah, yeah, I was. Yeah. And during the first series of this, it's been all sports personalities uh, with the exception of Pat and Mick. Yeah. Who, again, went toe to toe with him. And where there was an option for a dick joke, they sometimes got to it first. Yeah, exactly. They reckon that he was one or two people away from winning. And he blames it on those bloody women and their low cut dresses distracting him. He was still firmly in the closet at this point. (laughs) Um, He was still firmly his mother's bachelor son. (laughs) But it does make me wonder how out was he in show business circles. Yeah. Because there's also a couple of comments right at the beginning where uh, I think it's uh, Tim Boone is saying, oh, he's got to, you know, shoot the bad guys and charm the ladies. Yes. And he's certainly the right man for the job. 
I don't think that would have been said as a mean-spirited joke, but I did wonder if it was a bit nudge-nudge, wink-wink. It's one of those things where you watch it back in retrospect, and you some and you do think, oh, I wonder if there had been some discussions backstage, or if like even you know just sort of offhandedly someone saying like, oh, have you heard actually about Tony? Well, he had a long-term partner at this point. Yeah. He'd been with this partner, I think, for four or five years. Yeah. So I reckon people must have known. But also, as we've seen recently in the news, it's a sad indicator of how difficult it was yeah. to be out at that point in time. Oh, completely. Um, what I do love about Tony here is he goes into, uh, I, I, not, not shill mode, because that, that makes it sound like a very negative thing, but I just really appreciated him then being like, do you know what, actually, video games are brilliant, and this game's really good. I could see myself getting addicted to that game. Total bollocks. Like, he doesn't you know, really mean a word of what he's saying, but he's got so much conviction behind what he's saying I think it's actually quite lovely. Yeah, it, it's 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 a lovely tale of love lost and redemption and <laughs> and a burgeoning addiction to shooting people yeah. in a video game. Yeah. Uh, right, well, let's head on over into the consultation zone, or is it the consultation chamber, or is it, as Games Master calls it, his consultation area? Or is it the pad? <laughs> Either way, we're heading there now. Hello, Games Master. Welcome to my consultation area, up here on the helipad. How can I help you? I can't find the Blue Switch Palace in Super Mario World. Can you tell me where it is? Ah, that old chestnut. The Blue Switch Palace can only be reached from Forest of Illusion 2. There's a deceptively placed illusion wall toward the end of the level. Simply walk straight through it. Thank you very much. That's quite Ooh, This is much more breezy than last year. We're on a helipad now. Yeah, no, I don't like it as much. Actually, no, I love it. I, I think do. it's great. <laughs> I love the oil rig conceit. It's I love so the fact good. that we are in different zones every season. We've got some interesting ones to come, but I think this is this is the best. When people think of Games Master, I think this is the Games Master they think of. Like this in Series 3 Games Master, the design of him, this is what people remember of the show. Weirdly, I think some people actually mix it with Season 1 settings. So they're like, why was there a church on an oil rig? In fact, yeah. I'm fairly certain I've had that discussion with people <laughs> since we started this, <laughs> this project because they were like five or six. And they're like, oh yeah, it was that church in the middle of the sea. And I'm like season one and season two but close yeah, enough so close uh, our first kid is stuck on super mario world spoilers for the rest of this series this game is going to come up a lot this and a link to the past are going to be brought up a lot in the consultation zone and justifiably so because mario world is an easy game to play it's a difficult game to master it's a difficult game to 100 percent like to get all those exits I still don't think I've 100%ed this, and I've played it on multiple platforms at multiple times, but I'll still go back to it because it's still a great game. Also, probably this will be the second or third time I mentioned it. Yes, we know it was called Super Mario Brothers <laughs> 4. Yeah. Thank you, Damien. And Andrew, who's yes. probably listening as well. Uh, yes, we know it was on the Japanese <laughs> box, no, we didn't look at the Japanese box artwork. No. Get off our back! <laughs> uh, I know, I do know for a fact that I have 100% of this game because when they did the. Um, I know, I know, this is a bit of a humble brag, this. But um, you know, when they did the Super. They did the Game Boy Advance re releases of them and they were mm. called like Mario Advance series. And one of them was Super Mario World. And that actually had a percentage tracker. 
so that you knew if you'd found all the exits, if you'd got all the Yoshi coins, and you'd got all the hidden areas and everything. So that was the that's the only way I know that I've 100 percented this because I did it on the Game Boy Advance version. Oh, nice. See, now you've got it in me, and now I'm like, I'm going to get that loaded up, and I'm going to complete it. Oh, my classic SNES is in the office, mm. and I've been spending my lunch times replaying this game. And I am I am thinking to myself, do I want to 100% this? Particularly because while we're watching this show, it's going to come up so often. I almost feel like I should now, because they're telling me where everything is. Uh, but this kid can't find the blue switch palace uh, in Super Mario World. He needs to go through Forest of Illusion 2 and then walk through the wall into a hidden exit. He describes it as an old chestnut, and I'm like, well, maybe in your dimension, mate. Brand new here, lads. Hello, Games Master. Hello, and just what is your particular problem? Can you please tell me how I can beat my friends at Game Boy Tennis? Practice the game, young man. Failing that, you can always cheat. When it's your service game, Throw the ball high, but instead of striking it truly, step beneath it. If the ball lands on your head, you'll have won the point without raising a sweat. <laughs> Not terribly sporting, but hugely effective, I can assure you. Thanks, that's great. Our second kid can't beat his friends at tennis for the Game Boy, and Games Master gives him the 2019 advice of get good. In fairness, it's valid advice because <laughs> the option he gives him will likely result in a boxed ear or two from his friends. If you were doing this over and over again, because the, the, the cheat is, as you'll just heard, is you, when you throw the ball up in the air, if you walk slightly underneath it, it will hit you on the head and you just get the point. If you're doing that in a two-player game, that's a dick move. That is really a dick move. That's almost as much of a dick move as something that someone I grew up with did, which is multiple times when playing versus Tetris on the Game Boy with the link cable. Yeah. If they thought they were going to lose, they would accidentally oh, pull the link what? cable out. No. Dick move. <laughs> dick move. Hi, Games Master. Could you tell me if there are any special bonus areas on Zool? Oh, I'm rather pleased you asked this one. The zoo actually includes a special Games Master secret room full of goodies for your consumption. The room is located on the third level of the street world. Simply walk straight into the first right-hand room you come across, then you will reach the reward. Thanks a lot. And our final gamer wants to find hidden areas on Zool. Games Master's very excited to tell them that there is a Games Master themed special area that you can find. What are the chances of that? What are the chances? Pretty goddamn high. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk more about Zool next week because we've got a challenge for Zool next week. Uh, so we're going to talk a bit more about the game in, uh, on that episode. Is it too spoilery to say we've got a guest? No, I think we can say we've got a guest. We've got a guest. Yeah, we've got a guest. We're very excited. Yes, joining us for the entire episode. Yeah, yeah, really, really awesome. So it's time for our final challenge, and let's head on over to Games Master to find out exactly what it is. Finally, for the night, I've opted for an arcade game, which I hope will tickle your fancy. It's called Dragon's Lair 2, and I'd like you to complete the first level of the game and reach the time machine without leaving a life. Do watch out for the mother-in-law, an overweight old Hannibal who would like nothing more than to spot you with her rolling pin. I guarantee you the actual will be fast and furious, so brace yourselves for a picaresque adventure. <laughs> 
So we're playing Dragon's Layer 2, the Time Warp, I believe its full title was. Yeah, we're getting our mileage out of Laserdisc games yeah. this, this week. <laughs> Bloody hell. Just, they had one supplier that they knew, and they're just like, here, here's loads of them. Use all of them. They were expensive machines as well and very difficult to transport because quite often the Laserdisc mechanism was kind of semi-sealed, and if it got out of alignment... It was done. Yeah, I remember there's a, a really interesting book. I think I talked about this when we did Dragon's Lair on a previous episode. We did a Laserdisc game on a previous I think it was Mad Dog McCree, in fact. And the uh, developers of the games would make them, ship them out to companies, but would often spend more money getting them shipped back and fixing them and shipping them back out again. Because in transit, the Laserdisc would go all skew if by the time it gets to the arcade, it doesn't work anymore. So yeah, Dragon's Lair 2 came out, what, nearly 10 years after the original. It's crazy to think how early in the, the arcade boom Dragon's Lair was, because it was nothing like everything else that was in the arcades in 81. Yeah, I mean, development started in 1983 on this sequel, and it says a lot that it took eight odd years to yeah. get out there. You'd have thought they'd have kind of really pushed it, like to rush it, because... Dragon's Lair, the original, as you said, there was nothing like it to capitalise on that success. But unfortunately, by the time it came out, the sheen had gone away a bit because they'd also had Space Ace in that yeah, time. Yeah, Space Ace came out in that time, yeah. Because Mad Dog McCree and all its various uh, brethren from American laser games, they were all over the arcades, assuming they survived shipping. But I remember seeing Mad Dog McCree mm. like, around and... I don't really remember seeing Dragon's Lair 2, even in the same arcades that would have those other Laserdisc games. My local Laser Quest and Megazone and the places that would become my local arcades, they'd always have a full motion video shooter. But Dragon's Lair 2? Less so. Yeah, I don't think we really had any of the full motion games uh, on the Laserdisc games in my local arcade. I will recommend actually a book, um, you know, as we like to do on this podcast, there's a book called Generation Xbox. Um, and they've got a full chapter on like the history of these Laserdisc arcade games. It's really, really good. Why are we recommending books for? This is a video game <laughs> podcast Sorry, about just... a TV show <laughs> and soon a magazine. Never mind. <laughs> yeah. uh, but Dragon's Lair 2 uh, was going to get home ports of the game. They were announced for the Saturn, the Philips CDI, the 3DO and the Jaguar CD. But only the CDI version actually made it to release. And Computer Gaming World described Dragon's Lair 2 as an, an exceptional program which suffers from uninteresting gameplay, with the magazine criticizing it for being too much like its predecessor and just being a long series of trial and error instead of actually testing players' ability. Mm. It's, it's, it's quick-time events. It's basically a whole game of quick-time events. My whole opinion on quick-time events has changed drastically. I remember when they first started to make their way into modern gaming, I was very much of the group of people that was like, no, get it out of here. Give, give us proper gameplay. Nowadays, I'm much more mellow because I actually think it can allow game makers to put incredibly high tension sequences in, which still involve the player to some degree, yeah. rather than just being a flat cutscene. Yeah, completely. Uh, one a couple of great examples that come to mind is the, uh, the first Tomb Raider reboot. There's a couple of QTEs in there which... I think are absolutely brilliant, particularly the one where you're kind of like skidding down a slope and it's quite a horrific fate for Lara if you miss them. Uh, games like Until Dawn, where QTEs are absolutely key to a lot of the game mechanics, but because it is more of an interactive movie, it kind of fits. So yeah, I've mellowed. Yeah, I very much like them in the Until Dawn 
side of things where they're like, you, they essentially have consequences. And taking a magical skip down fantasy lane on this challenge is one of the best arcade players we've ever seen. So please welcome from Portsmouth, Dougie Johns. Okay, thank you. Now, Dougie, we've seen you in action. We know you're one of the best players around, but this game is very tough. Can you do it? Oh, well, yeah. I think with my superbly home, home game playing skills, I should be able to walk it. Okay, we've got a very plucky competitor there. Uh, so, uh, taking a magical skip down Fantasy Lane is Dougie Jones, who is going to be competing. He's got to complete the first level of Dragon's Lair without losing a life. They call Dougie Jones one of the best arcade players in the country, and he's bound to be, because he's from Pompey. I up the Pompey. That's where I went to university. Oh, okay. And they nearly moved there, in fairness. It's where I had legit the best job of my life uh, working. Aside from the, the job I have now, um, I used to work in the game station in Portsmouth and it was, I was just working there with my friends and we were just playing games and just talking a load of crap all day long. And it was absolutely brilliant. I actually briefly, when I was at college, had a job in a local game shop, but I only talked to people when they came in because it was a very small and very sketchy game shop. It was mainly used games. Occasionally we did get new games in, but also above the shop in a room was a massive bank of VCRs. Oh, and a monitor. Yes. Now you're thinking, ooh, bootleg films. No. The other stuff. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, there were plain brown bags with videotapes in under the counter, and occasionally the boss would come in in the morning, go upstairs, puts them down under the counter, and says, oh, if so-and-so comes in and asks. <laughs> and I'm thinking, ah, this is really dodgy. This is really sketchy. But I do get to sit and play Fire Pro Wrestling on a chipped PS1 and I get paid 30 quid a day, yeah. cash in hand. So I was fine. Uh, the great days at GameStation were when you would get someone come in who has like, oh, we're just emptying out the loft uh, and we've just got loads of stuff here, like this big sort of like cardboard box that's full of games. And you would just scan them in. You scan them in, scan them in, scan them in. And, and the best ones were the ones that didn't scan properly. Because if they didn't scan properly, that means they were 50p cash or 99p trade. So I scanned in a copy of Panzer Dragoon Saga, which didn't scan. And my boss was like, the rules are you've got to do this. So he scanned it in and I got to buy Panzer Dragoon Saga for 199 buy one, get one free. Bloody hell. I know, right? You lived a charmed life back then. <laughs> yeah. So if you're sitting there listening to this podcast thinking, when are you going to get to the fireworks factory and talk about the game? There's not a lot to talk about because the lad does very well and then he loses. The commentary in this challenge is barely legible. There's a handful of mother-in-law jokes because truly this entire sequence is one long mother-in-law joke, as well as the occasional shouting of the words holes and snakes. Yeah. Got to look out for look the out, flashes. Look out for here she comes oh. up. She's a big girl, Tim. Out the door as fast as you can, because you don't want to mess with her. She's and now watch your and away you go. And like I would have followed me. <laughs> um, I will say though, Tim Boone, a uh, bit of an editing area here, wearing a different shirt to the one he was wearing in the previous challenge. Ooh. Come on, guys. Continuity. Continuity. He's wearing a lovely Star Wars t-shirt. Okay, forgiven. Yeah. <laughs> no, Douglas. What happened? We knew, we, we've seen you before, you're a brilliant player, but it's a very tough game, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. The Don Bluth games are you know, right on there, split-second decisions, and pressure was on and just missed one move. Okay, well, you've given me, personally, a lot of pleasure today, Doug, so... Yeah, the guy just, he makes it really fun, and it's weird because I've written in my notes here, it's a game that's more fun to play than it is to watch, but it is also sort of fun to watch, 
than it is to play because I don't think it's that fun to play either. It's a weird balance and it's for some reason it just doesn't translate into watching on a TV challenge. To me, it kind of falls into the same trap as Guitar Hero and Rock Band, which are two games that I absolutely love. Yeah. I co-run an event based on Rock Band still now because I love it that much, but I don't see most of the animation and the shtick going on if I'm playing it because yeah. I'm focused on hitting the targets. So uh, as a good example, the Beatles Rock Band, some beautiful animation, amazing visuals, music videos that would have never existed for the Beatles, but I never see them when I'm playing. Because no. I'm trying to hit the orange notes. I'm not seeing <laughs> the hillside visage for uh, George Harrison's Here Comes the Sun. Uh, so yeah, so I don't think this particularly translates. I will give a little bit of trivia about uh, Dragon's Lair, though. Daphne from the Dragon's Lair series was originally scripted to appear in the Adam Sandler movie Pixels. Man, narrow escape for the Dragon's Lair franchise then. Yeah, so the, yeah, the, the video game character that Josh Gad's character falls in love with was supposed to be Daphne. Do you know what? I completely forgot that film had a plot. <laughs> I will say, I don't hate Pixels. You're not trying hard enough. <laughs> uh, Dominic Diamond says actually that we saw, that they saw Dougie complete it in the practice mode. They said, we saw you complete it, you know, a couple of times, but Doug says, you know what? Bluth games are tough. I just made the wrong move. Yeah. He does actually call him Douglas as well. It's like, got real when you lost. <laughs> You're not Dougie. We're not friends anymore. You're Douglas. You're in trouble, Douglas. Also, that air horn is really annoying in this challenge. I was about to say, you can tell that we are in the 90s now because <laughs> it's just on and on and on throughout this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, get used to it, folks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Dominic Diamond says that uh, Doug has given him a lot of pleasure. Well, we've actually now got on the line a man who wasn't just a contestant on Series 2 of Games Master, he was also the researcher for the show. We welcome to Under Consultation, Doug Johns. Doug, how are you? Not too bad. How are you doing? I'm very, very well. Thank you very much. So, yeah, we just watched your challenge on Games Master uh, Series 2 where you took on uh, Dragon's Lair 2. Um, so you, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but before we get into that, uh, how did you get involved uh, with Games Master? Uh, look, I've been in the games industry for a long time. Well, I was a big games fan. So, you know, pretty much from when I was a kid, first played Space Invaders on a ferry going across the Channel Islands from, from the UK. I then worked in computer retail then moved from that into journalism. So I worked for some magazines in the South Coast called Amiga Action and ST Action. Um, I then, you know, that moved up north. And from there, I then applied for the job on Games Master and, and got that and came down to London and took part in the uh, Games Master series on, on the uh, oil rig. So did you only work on the second series? Yeah, the oil rig one. That was the, the only one that I worked on. But we actually did... The, the, the company that actually did Games Master, Hewland International, they also did another games program um, which went out on uh, what was Sky, uh, mm. which was called Games World, and that like, ran five nights a week. And I moved across to that and, and did one of those nights. I did the tips night on that. And look, you know, I, a few people remember games, games World, but it was pretty good. So just to kind of give our listeners a bit of context, what would you say a, a researcher does for a show like Games Master? 
Look, there, there was there was a few of us. There was three of us that were researchers. So we, we got various things divvied out. And it's usually, you know, you'd be like, OK, you're going to look after the reviews. So speak to the various companies to try and get access to code uh, so you can do reviews. Someone else might be doing interviews. Someone else might be doing, OK, you deal with the talent that's going to come on and do those challenges. So we'd all take our own little bit. Um, I, I, because I was a big game fan and knew and came from a journalist background, um, I already knew a lot of the PRs at the company. So I, I was sort of like certainly help with getting access to that code and it was pretty tough only because you know in today's world where you know it's not even print it's really more about online you know you can get a game play it and put the review up tomorrow um but with us we were really working on like a three-month lead time schedule so you're asking people you know back when the games were you know that the industry wasn't quite as polished as delivering content to give you access to a game three months maybe four months before it was coming out which in a lot of you know examples with reviews it's like well the game's only half complete so it's made <laughs> yeah. it really really hard but yeah that's the, that's the, you know, so you get the game in and then once you've got it you sort of like play it and record it um and with the reviews we didn't review it we'd actually get um unbiased people to come in so games media and stuff like that um again because i've been a journo i sort of knew all the journos we were all mates so we just reached out to those people and went look you know do you want to come on and do some vox pops uh, just some little quotes just saying what you think about the game uh, and put that together and look you know it's, it was it was good fun there was a lot of people that were not experiencing tv at all so i think there was varying levels of success with that um but you know well well, well done to them all you know because you don't know what it's like until you're really staring at that camera and it can really affect people in different ways did you also have um because i think i spoke to someone who was a contestant on season two who said that they dealt with you so did you actually like were you auditioning people to be on the show uh yeah we, we sort of yeah look you know to be honest uh if you put your name forward and we grabbed you in you, you pretty much was there um because we didn't have a lot of budget or time to play about with and you know there was only a few examples when people come on and just weren't good enough to go on the show i remember we also did like the tip section on games master which is you know a kid yeah. come on stand in a green screen and go Hey, Games Master, how do I beat this level on Super Mario or something? And I remember one, the, the kids were pretty good, but I remember just one example where this kid came in. He was from wherever he was. I think he had a like, two-hour trip to get to this studio in London. And he just came up and where to do is say, yeah, hey, Games Master, how do I beat this thing in this game? And he was like, hi, Games Master. And just <laughs> couldn't. It was just, and it, it wasn't scared. It was just too overwhelming for him. You know, he was, yeah. you know, he was a young lad. He'd come to his studio, which was like down in the basement and, there was like a whole crew all standing around him with several cameras and he had to look at this Im imaginary thing in the corner and it was just too overwhelming. And he, he, he had a good few goes, but <laughs> it never happened. And we, we actually cleaned out the whole studio. So it was just him and the camera and one person in the end, but it was too much for him, the, the poor little sod. But, oh, you know, bless. It's, I, I think, um, you know, but it, it wasn't a polished show in, on that level, you know, it, so it didn't really matter. It was it was for the fans and sort of made for the fans to a certain level. And I think that certainly comes across in it. And again, with, you know, the, the kids that were coming on and then maybe doing a challenge and stuff, you know, there were some that, you know, were very shy and quiet and that was fine, but they were possibly the better gamers. And then other people that are a bit more gregarious, but possibly didn't do so well. So it was that, that you know, that mixture. So you said you were a gamer at this time. Um, I'm assuming that's then how you managed to become a contestant on the show as well. But like, how was how did the idea of you being a contestant come up? Like, how was it broached to you? Look, I do you know what, I can't remember. But what I would probably say is that it probably would have been one of two cases. It would have either been someone didn't turn up on the day 
and so there was no one to do it. <laughs> right. Or with Dragon's Lair, it's it's a game that's actually you know if you don't know it, you know you, you're not going to get very far. Um, it's it's you know simple enough up, down, left, right, but get your timings right. So I think it was possibly then a case of we want this is only going to work if we can actually get through a few scenes. So I got lumped in, but as I remember, I don't think I'd been practicing it very much. We just, you know, the machine turned up and I hadn't had much time. So I don't think I got that far off the top of my head. Um, but it would have probably been one of those two reasons. Had you played the first Dragon's Lair or, you know, games of that? Because you also had the, the Johnny Rock game in uh, with uh, Tony Slattery, which was also in the first episode. Yeah, look, I, I had played Dragon's Lair before, but not much. You know, look, I came from Portsmouth uh, back in the day. So I grew up going to coin arcades down by the beach and, you know, uh, spent a lot of time playing your Donkey Kongs and you know, Galaxians and Gallagher and all that sort of stuff way back in the day. But I always hated Dragon's Lair because, you know, it was it, it, only because, you know, it's one of those things, you know, once you, you know it, trial and error, you know it. But when you're you know, feeding, you know, what was 10 pence into it then, which and I didn't have a lot. I might have had, you know, a pound to, to spend that day. You know, I didn't want to particularly have that blown within about 15 minutes through trial and error. So I didn't play that game very much at the arcades, which probably to a lot of people that are not my age and maybe only about 18 now probably just sounds like complete gobbledygook what I'm banking <laughs> on about. Um, but, you know, it, it, was, it was a different time. Uh, I mean, because Dominic Diamond does say during the uh, sort of the post-match that you have that um, you were great in practice. So did you actually, like, nail the challenge? <laughs> no, no. He would probably be very kind. Um, <laughs> Dominic was a good lad, and he would, I think that's probably just a bit of a presenter's bravado uh, being kind to me. <laughs> but but no, and I, don't, I think... I think I, you know, yeah, I'm pretty sure I got about five minutes to play the bloody thing. And as you say, or as you know, if, if you're familiar with Dragon's Lair, it's, it's just about knowing you yeah. know, what you have to do on each particular scene. And you have to be quick and get the timing just right. And it was, it, you know, as it gets a bit later, it's quite an unforgiving game. You know, it's, to be honest, it's quite a bad game. Um, but what was really good at the time, it was late disc. And, you know, you were seeing stuff that looked like a movie at a time when, you know, up against long-sided machines like, you know, donkey kong you know which it was a totally yeah. different level so it looked great in terms of the gameplay yeah it sucked a bit because you were you know a researcher on the show and you ended up being a contestant and we were pretty sure that happened in series one as well which very much felt like they were just flying by the seat of their pants to get you know the the 10 episodes done but were there other examples of you know the crew or people working behind the camera just sort of jumping in to, to be a contestant in the second series Look, the, the, the Dragon's Day one is the only one I can remember off the top of my head. You know, sometimes, you know, uh, we, we, we tended to try and avoid that only because it was, you know, we were the crew and it was about the kids and stuff like that. Um, so if, if it was happening, it was only because there was probably a reason it had to happen, not because we planned it. Um, you know, obviously some of the, I remember there was a couple of contestants who are, are, were friends. So it was also back in those days, it wasn't so much of getting your mates in. It was a case of actually getting people to write in. We didn't get a tremendous amount, you know, um, mm. pretty much if you were a girl, you were in because yeah. you know, you'd have like one in every 20 submissions being a girl. And obviously we wanted to have as much balance as possible. But, you know, back in that day, you know, the, the, the percentage of female to male gamers was probably quite different. I think it was a lot more male heavy than even who was actually spending and playing uh, games. Uh, but obviously that's a lot more balanced now. It's very close to the 50-50, which is a lot nicer to see. But even now when you look at, um, you know, journalists and media, it's, you know, the female writers are certainly that there's less of them. Um, but, you know, it's it's slowly getting to, to, you know, a more 
even balance, which is good. So Games Master Series 2 was quite a wild ride. You had some incredible celebrities on there as well. But do you have like any, what's your favourite like memory of working on Games Master? Oh, look, well, if you talk about celebrities, um, I'd say probably the, the WWE wrestler Duggan or Jeff Duggan. Hank, I don't want his or Jim Duggan. Him. And like the reason I remember him is like there was, there was a few of them that came on and to the most part, the celebrities are quite nice. It seemed the lower profile they were, the bigger dicks they were. Um, but, <laughs> but Duggan came on and he was the quietest, most timid guy possible. And I remember I was looking after him in the green room and just saying you know how can i help you what do you need and he'd be like it was oh, just kind of coke just uh, was it just kind of coke bud just kind of coke bud that, that's all he said to me and yeah. then they got out there with dominic and they said action and the man went insane <laughs> just burst into life <laughs> and grabbed dominic and threw him across the set um i think we did a couple of takes because Dominic just didn't know what was going on the guy just went mental and uh <laughs> the, the one that went out is possibly a combination of a few takes but what what a uh, you know, there, there was a real performer, you know, someone that, as he was behind the camera to as he was in front, totally different. And, you know, he was probably one of the biggest stars we had on there because, you know, obviously WWF, as it was then, was really, really big. Um, so that was great. But then, of course, we also had a lot of local people as well. Um, I think if we're going to out people for the ones I didn't like, uh, Michael Fish, the weather presenter. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, he did one of the reviews and um, we sort of like... We had a load of, you know, games journalists coming on. People that do not do TV have not been in front of a camera and not used to it. And so probably not doing their lines or, you know, being nervous, taking 10 takes, whatever. That's not the end of the world. He was the most unforgiving man in the world and was just so complained about the quality of their, you know, TV skills. And it's like, mate. You're a weather guy who massively cocked up with probably the biggest <laughs> weather storm back in the day. You probably yeah. just need to calm down a bit. Um, but yeah, he was, I wasn't a big fan of him. Uh, so we're obviously big fans of the show. We're big fans of everything that, that went on with it. But obviously, you know, Dominic Diamonds is a real stalwart of the series and, and the, the franchise overall. Um, do you have any good Dominic Diamond stories? <laughs> um, probably nothing I'm willing to say on uh, on tape. Um, I haven't spoken to Dominic for a long time, so I don't know what he's doing at the moment. He was up writing for you know some of the newspapers in Scotland, and he's around, so I'll, I'll be careful about what I say. Um, but yeah, look, now he was a great guy. He used to be out and we always go out together and have a laugh. Uh, you know, I remember one night, you know, going to the pub and playing a lot of pinball, and you know, just having a bit of a competition. And there was there was. Um, uh, a sort of like a punishment forever came last and Dominic had been winning all night and he actually lost and so oh, right. he had to go out and do a dare that we told him to do in the Trocadero but I'm not going to tell you what it is because it was really <laughs> dodgy um, but I will say he did what, what we dared him to do so fair play the guy was uh, you know he, he, was, he was a good lad and up for a laugh um, but I'd say that about pretty much most of the crew well that's it for this week Join us in seven days when we'll have Frank Bruno taking on arcade champion Paul Turner at Sonic Blastman. Well, that just whips up my appetite for the catfish and almond bake that's on the menu tonight. So we're off to have a little bit of that, and we'll see you next week. Good night. And as we come to the end of the show, we get, interestingly, Dominic Diamond telling us what's coming up next week. That was a bold move, given that I'm assuming they still film stuff out of sequence well, at this we, point. We know for a fact they did, because we've got Tim Boone wearing two different shirts here. Yeah, true. But it does show that they're actually working with a bit more of a structure and idea. And as the episodes begin to show, 
it looks like they're going into this season with a plan. Yeah, particularly around the celebrity challenges. They have mapped out which celebrities we're doing on which episodes. I do feel mm. uh, certainly with that way because they tell us that Frank Bruno is going to be on the show next week. Oh, legend. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and tonight we are having Catfish and Almond Bake. We'll see you in seven days. Tasty. Tasty. Difficult fish to cook a catfish. I don't think I've ever had it. It. <laughs> Here we are, cooking tips. <laughs> <laughs> There's an issue with some fish because catfish, particularly um, a lot of the freshwater kind, are bottom feeders. And so you have to be very careful when you're cleaning them because obviously where they're bottom feeders, they will get a lot of silt and mm. sand. And otherwise you can end up with literally a muddy fish. Oh, yeah. there you go. Um, so that was the episode. A lot to dive into with episode one of this show because you had like the big bit, the, the big joke at the start. And then three challenges and your reviews and your consultation to get in. But I feel like the problem is, is that we spend so much time wasted on the joke. It's like two minutes worth. And then you've got 60 seconds worth of credits. So you've, you've lost three minutes of your already short runtime. They really love that opening title sequence because it doesn't get any shorter. No. Uh, but what did you think of the episode overall? Only one challenge out of three really tickled my fancies. Uh, the Street Fighter Challenge. Yeah. Even though it wasn't great Street Fighter playing by modern standards, it was great to see, especially because this was showing a game that I would be able to own. That was a big thing. Johnny Rock failed through no real fault of the celebrity. I mean, yes, he died, but the game mechanic itself was at fault because you have to go through the sequence again and again and again. And even that is a technical limitation because it's a laser disc game, which means that what happens is it skips back to the start of the chapter. Dragon's Lair, I'd say that that, that didn't tickle my fancy. It maybe stroked it slightly because it is a beautiful looking game. The animation quality is tip top. The voice acting is great. And if he'd won, I think I'd be going two out of three challenges really appealed to me. But as a result, he didn't, and it kind of left a bit of a wet squib at the end. Yeah, i got to agree. It really is. It's only the Street Fighter 2 challenge that, that I got a kick out of here. And as you say, although it is bad Street Fighter playing, it's 1991-2, or probably 92 at this point. It's 92-era Street Fighter playing. So I actually got a real big nostalgia kick out of people quote being the best at street fighter while at the same time not being good at street fighter it was a nice little trip down memory lane and i think also while you've just been saying that my brain just twigged what the issue was with the other two challenges it was two quick time based challenges that's exactly the same thing yeah it okay one uses a gun but at the end of the day it's still waiting for you to make an action or fail to make an action yeah in following a predetermined path there's no skip back there's no skip forward there's no warp zones there's nothing that can really make it an exciting experience to watch yeah i was gonna say it would be like if they had done a whole episode where you played nothing but street fighter 2 good luck when we get to series three <laughs> yeah i was gonna say you're 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 tempting fate a bit there let's look at the positives yes while a little long the fake out intro was a lot of fun made me laugh and, yeah. it, and it worked yeah definitely worked the new budget the bigger intro oh, yes the scale of the thing he may hate it i like the red coat look from dominic diamond i think it's a great and also somewhat unexpected turn i mean wearing the waistcoat and white shirt in the church that was suitably gothic holiday camp on an oil rig that's out of left field that's kind of a weird butlin city of lost children thing going on 
but I like it. The reviews are still snarky. The consultation zone is still charming and entertaining. And the show feels like I remember the show being, which is hundreds of rabid kids screaming while gameplay goes on. It's a total level up. It is. It's a total level up. So score-wise, I'm not going to be too harsh. I'm going to give it 75%. Okay. I, I was originally going 70 but then again, as I think has happened a couple of times, well, I'm just going through my afterthoughts i'm like no i'll give it an extra five because what it lacks in challenges it makes up in just going at it full barrel yeah do you know what you might have talked me around there because like you i had it lower i actually wrote down 60 percent originally <sighs> which i know sounds low but it's only because there's only there's one challenge in there that I, that i liked and as i said the big problem with the episode is that three to four minutes of it are wasted on a joke and credits so your review zone, your review zone is shorter. I did, but then I, the more I think about it, I like the Sonic Two preview that we got, and I really, really like that Street Fighter Two challenge, and I just love the setting. So that does kind of influence my score somewhat. So I actually am going to up it, but I'm still in that 60s period. I'm going to go for 68 percent. Better than 60. Not quite giving it the Dignity 69. Uh, well, no, do you know what? Because you've talked me into this before and I'm not going to have it happen again. No, we can't. Do you know what? 69, 69. Nice. Nice. <laughs> so we're going to go off now and have us some um, uh, catfish and almond bake that Ash is preparing because apparently it's very difficult. You can eat it. I can't eat it. I'm allergic, mate. <laughs> this is going to be a thin pickings on the dis- on the menu for me. I'm vegetarian, mate. It's terrible for me. <laughs> We can have the almonds. You yeah. don't have an almond allergy, do no, you? Oh, I'm okay. Awesome. <laughs> but we'll see you in seven days. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.